Hello, everybody. This is Matt Morales. I'm the host of Columbia Alumni Radio. And we are here, uh, episode two, with Varun Gulati and Chris Yim of UClass, uh, an exciting startup that they recently sold uh, to a, a, a large Midwestern company called Renaissance Learning. And they're going to tell us today about their uh, adventures and you know, trials and tribulations building that company, as well as uh, we're going to dig into uh, education, the education system, technology, big trends, uh, really important things for society, and uh, and get their perspective on that. Uh, welcome, uh, Varun and Chris. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, so, for the uh, you know, for the very few people of the world out there who don't know what U class is. Can you share a little bit about just give the basic pitch of of, of what the what the company is or was, and uh, and why you guys started it? Sure, absolutely. Um, so UClass in its final form actually went through a couple of iterations. Uh, it was actually originally called United Classrooms, um, and the mission which which what we we kept until the end was we wanted to um, build build bridges between classrooms around the world. Um, and it started off primarily as a pen pal sharing service, but as we dug more, more and more deeper into that, uh, what we saw was that it, we needed to have more of an academic component. Um, and that's, that's what we started doing. We, uh, we focused a little more on projects and assignments and lesson sharing. And eventually we brought this to, to the district level and moved away from the teacher-to-teacher -teacher exchange. And it was during that time that uh, districts told us, like, hey, your project is great, but what we really want is something where our, our teachers within our district can share with each other in free form. And so what we actually ended up creating at the very end was essentially a Dropbox for teachers, but it was specific for the K-12 industry. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, we, have, we had things like Common Core tagging. Um, you could search for lesson packages together, which had formative assessments and worksheets and lesson plans. Um, everything was, was aligned to standards. Uh, and we made it really easy for teachers to share their existing curriculum in whatever format they had. Um, and in addition to that, we add various levels of scoping. So if you wanted to look at lessons just within your school or just within uh, your district, you could do that as well. Um, and what made this really powerful is, is it really brought the notion of lesson sharing to a localized community, to your walled garden, as we called it. Um, and and in, in, in doing so, what we saw is that uh, teachers teachers were really engaging with the platform as a way to not only see what what uh, other teachers were doing, but also to to host their own curriculum and their own their own assignments and their worksheets on the platform as well. Um, and ultimately, our vision over here was that we would be able to not only have a lot of curriculum on our platform, but we would be able to inform teachers of what what curriculum they should be providing their students based upon where their students are at. Um, that's actually how we ended up uh, started started talking. Started how we ended up talking to Renaissance Learning, the company that ended up acquiring us. Uh, it was it was a conversation about bridging their data. They had a lot of assessment data. So they were able to say your students are at this level. We wanted to take the information and say, all right, given your, that your students are on this level and that you have this content on your platform, why not teach this one thing tomorrow? Interesting, um, and we kind of jumped into the the, uh, the 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 platform and the product here, but just real quick, um, Varun, Chris, why don't you guys just sort of introduce yourselves and and tell us about who you are and your your background? Yeah, sure. Uh, I can I can start. Um, 
I am originally from uh, the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia. I ended up going to Columbia, uh, where I met Varun pretty much on my first day at, at Columbia at a pre-orientation program. Uh, we ended up living together our sophomore year with uh, a few other buddies, uh, one of whom uh, was the became the CEO and uh, another co-founder at UClass. Um, after school, I went on to uh, teach English in South Korea, uh, moved back to New York, uh, worked in a few different industries and, and jobs there, and uh, while Varun did Teach for America in New Orleans and uh, and then left uh, his teaching role to pursue uh, a, a position at Google. Um, meanwhile, our friend and buddy Zach was uh, a former teacher uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, and then went on to teach at an international school in Tanzania. Uh, he came up with this idea to start connecting classrooms around, around the world and wanted to uh, first connect his classroom in Tanzania with the one that he had formerly taught in Phoenix, Arizona. And so uh, he came back to the States uh, having uh, this vision to start this platform and uh, recruited me and Varun to come join him uh, as he was moving the company um, out west to San Francisco. Um, so me and Zach, we um, packed up his car and uh, I was living in New York at the time uh, working there. I quit my job and uh, we got in the car and drove cross country to uh, San Francisco where we started this accelerator called Hub Ventures. Um, they're now known as Better Ventures. Uh, we uh, teamed up with Varun who quit his job at Google a month later and joined our team and uh, the rest uh, has kind of been history. And just real quick, quick uh, Chris, where, when did you graduate from Columbia? Yeah, so Varun and I both graduated in 2010. I was uh, CC, Varun was C's, and uh, Zach was uh, 2008 uh, from CC. Cool. Yep. And Varun, what's, uh, t tell us a little about how you got involved in this crazy, crazy venture here. Sure, yeah. Chris gave you a little glimpse into that, but uh, after graduating from Columbia, I, I went down to New Orleans and taught there for two years. I taught geometry to 10th graders. Um, and uh, then after that, I went over to the Bay Area, worked at Google and Mountain View. Um, and it was in my fifth or sixth month at Google that uh, Zach came out to San Francisco to talk to uh, the Accelerator Hub Ventures. And he called me up and um, uh, I was like, hey, man, can I stay with you? I said, sure. And so he crashed on my couch while, while uh, he was interviewing Hub Ventures. And, some, and that, that very weekend, he also said, uh, uh, that he needed to put down the name of, 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 of someone as his CTO for his company. Um, otherwise, he uh, was worried that they might, they might frown down upon his application. Um, so I was like, sure, yeah, put my name down. We'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, we got into the accelerator, and that's when he was like, all right, is this for real? Are you committed? And I said, yeah, absolutely, I'm down. I believe in you, class. <laughs> and that's how it ended up happening. That's awesome. So it was, it was really opportunistic for you, it sounds like. It's like, yeah, sure, I'll take a flyer. And yeah. then that, it, that thing became real. Yeah, and at the time I was actually talking to two other tech companies, um, potentially about venturing. I mean, I, I had missed coming to Google from the classroom. I missed education a lot. I missed the K-12, missed the teaching environment. Um, so I was talking to two other education technology companies about joining their staff. Uh, and, but I think it ended up working out well that um, Zach and the timing of U-Class was, was just perfect. That That's awesome. Yeah. And so... 
you know, it, it's one of the things I've I've wondered. You know, there's been this flood of accelerators and seed capital and coming in, and it it lowers the bar for people to be able to start a company. Um, and I've wondered if that's good or not. You know, if 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 it just creates these people who are less serious. Uh, it sounds like for you guys, it it both definitely lowered the bar and you guys, if this opportunity wasn't there, you guys wouldn't have even started this thing. But even though, but regardless, it seems like it was a really good experience and outcome and, and you know, um, f for you guys. Are you asking if we're in a bubble? <laughs> no, just kidding. Actually, no, I think I think the accelerator was a great thing for us. Uh, we, at the, we would have done... I think if, you, if if Zach came out to SF and said, uh, hey, we want to make this company into a real thing, and we did not get into an accelerator, we would have still gone for it. But uh, the accelerator did provide a number of things that really did help us at the at the point in time, uh, at, at that point in time. Because um, at that point, we were we were operating as a dot org. We were uh, just connecting classrooms kind of ad hoc. What we needed to do was we needed to make it into a business. And that's what the accelerator taught us how to do. Taught us about the business model cannabis. Taught us about lean methodology. Taught us about fundraising. Taught us about Silicon Valley in general. Taught us how to build a team, how to maintain a team. Um, and then at the very end of it, it connected us to a number of investors in the social impact space. Um, and that, I think, really, really meant a lot to us. Uh, and did it did what the purpose of it was. It accelerated us forward. And, and let's talk about that for a second. You know, let's talk about accelerators, because I think it's, it's interesting. I've heard this said that these accelerators are the new grad school that <laughs> you know there's the that they provide this structure for people you know to be able who have ideas to 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 you know create a business and they it's almost like school in a way where you know there's all these people who've like had very structured lives going you know from uh you know the kind of people who end up at Columbia, you know, very often were doing, you know, bazillions of activities in high school and, and whatnot. That definitely, when I went there, you know, uh, I definitely got, got that vibe. And then sort of the, the accelerator is like, you know, once you leave school, there's a structured approach to entrepreneurship. What do you think of that idea? And what if you think that's true, what do you think of that trend? And is, is, that, a, is that a positive thing beyond you know, just your guys' experience, but in general? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges in starting a company is just really um, is is in the beginning when you have this idea, and it may, may or may not be a great idea, but um, you have, um, many people have some reservations about completely diving into it and, um, and leaving whatever, uh, whatever else they had behind, and I think that, uh, a lot of the times when you're committing to an accelerator, that's um, your decision to fully dive in and, and say, like, we're really going to go for this and, and try this thing. And so I think that uh, just like grad school where you, you know, you probably have to quit your full-time job to, to enroll in a, in a grad program, uh, accelerators are, are, are similar in that way. You just, uh, you have to dive in and, and see what happens and, and make the most of your experience because uh, it's... Uh, you know, at least an opportunity cost. Um, you know, while you're while you're in the program, but I think that you know, a lot of accelerators these days they have a very structured um, uh, or a somewhat structured curriculum, 
uh, in our program, the first month, we, we did a lot of customer development uh, where we talked to um, a bunch of teachers, uh, school district administrators, and, and school administrators just to understand more about the problem that we wanted to solve. Uh, the second month of the program was um, involved in, in product development where we just focused, uh, we're laser focused on how to improve and, and develop uh, the solution that we were building. And then the last month was uh, focused on the pitch and then fundraising. And so for a lot of us who are first time entrepreneurs going into uh, these, accelerator, uh, these accelerators, uh, this type of structure is uh, incredibly useful. And, uh, and then accelerators often, the one, at least the one that we uh, were a part of, uh, provided a lot of mentorship. So, um, you know, we came, all of us came from uh, the education um, field and were in the classroom. So, you know, when it came to things like wireframing or developing a pitch deck or, um, or just interviewing customers, we didn't really know how to do any of that. So um, that kind of education was super informative for our experience. And then coming out of the accelerator, I think that we, we took a lot of the insights that we captured and, and some of the structure that we um, were told were best practices. Um, as you start a company, we, uh, we followed through on and, um, and remained, uh, we kept those things as part of our daily practices uh, as we built our company. That's, that's awesome. Varun, any thoughts on this? Yeah, it's interesting because if you if you look at a trend across grad programs uh, in in the U.S., you'll notice that there is there is this uh, affinity these days to move towards um, hands-on learning, to experiential education, if you will. Uh, and the cool thing about accelerators is that you're learning by doing. You either succeed or you fail. You make a lot of mistakes along the way. You'll probably pivot two to three times, uh, maybe more. Um, but an accelerator is really pushing you into the deep end of the pool and saying, all right, here's what you should be doing. Here's, 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 some, here's how you can navigate, figure out your bearings. Um, and that's the cool thing about it. So in, in some ways, I think it's, it's a, a, a lot more high pressure than grad school because you have to, you have to make do in, in a short amount of time. Um, but you also get a lot more resources and support. You get a little bit of money. Uh, you have a network of people who have gone through the things that you have, um, and you're being guided along the way step by step. Um, so it's pretty cool, and, and I think. Yeah, and I, and I know we're not trying to compare, um, necessarily compare grad school to accelerators, but I think that, you know, when you're when you're building a company and, um, you know, you have to learn super quickly. Um, there's just a lot on the line, and I think you know, whereas in school, uh, you don't get feedback as as often. Uh, you you know, you take your exams at the end of the semester, or you know, write papers. Um, intermittently, but you know you're constantly having to um, just figure figure it out, and uh, and you really can't sit back and let your learning happen passively. You have to kind of hunt down uh, whatever it is that you're trying to achieve and do. That's 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 fascinating, uh, and it's it's really interesting, Varun, to hear you compare this to sort of an experiment uh, experiential education, because I mean. It's the ultimate experience, right? You know, you're, you're you're building a business. You know, you're you're getting sort of taught. You know, while at the same time trying to trying to you know get customers and do these things. Um, I I love that idea. Um, but so let's let's go back to U class a little bit. So, you guys talked about connecting people in Tanzania and Phoenix. Uh, you guys did not start off as as Dropbox for for the classroom. 
you want to just you know for listeners uh, who don't know talk about how you guys started and, and and how you guys ended up as this sort of like Dropbox for education model. Yeah, sure. So I think that you know uh, when we first started, you know we had this uh, we had this vision of um, connecting our students and making them um, global citizens of this. Uh, like universal uh, of this universal classroom, um, and we didn't quite have like Vern said we didn't quite have a business model uh, around around that platform. Uh, and so when we came out to um, San Francisco to be a part of this accelerator, uh, one of the things that the founders uh, of the accelerator kept uh, asking us is, you know, how do we make uh, what we have into uh, a painkiller instead of a vitamin? Uh, and a painkiller is something that it's a, it's a must-have, whereas a vitamin is a, is a nice-to-have. So that was um, the question we kept on grappling with. And so as we went out and, and talked to the teachers... Um, just, just real quick, sure. to be clear, you guys started off as basically a pen pal service, or like a pen, an online pen pal network for, 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 for students. Is that yeah, accurate? Yeah, pretty much. But it had, a, it had like a lot of uh, your social network components to it. It had a news feed. You could interact with the other students in, like a, in a world forum. We had a question of the day, had a project of the week, that sort of thing. All right, Chris, uh, yeah. sorry for interrupting. You can keep yeah. going, but I just wanted to, to clarify yeah. that. Yeah, so it was, like a, it was like a Facebook for classrooms, essentially. Um, and, that, and that was exactly the service, just um, uh, connecting classrooms. And so uh, when we came out here uh, and started talking to teachers, we asked them, you know, is global collaboration something that uh, you're focused on in the classroom in, the, in your day-to-day? Uh, and many of the teachers are like, you know, as much as we want our, our students to be global citizens of the world, uh, that's not something that's at the forefront of our minds. You know, there's, uh, there's this new um, um, federal state of sta- state standards that are uh, standards that are coming out, and you know, we're really focused on aligning our curriculum uh, to, to the Common Core, and so that's a big priority for us. And so as we started thinking about, you know, how we wanted to uh, um, position ourselves uh, as uh, something that would uh, alleviate a pain point for teachers. Uh, we started uh, looking internally at our at our platform and noticing uh, where we would see uh, spurts of engagement. And we found that teachers and students were most uh, actively engaged on our platform whenever we um, whenever we uh, provided some sort of uh, content for, for them to engage in. And so initially, that started out as uh, these monthly projects. Uh, so an example of a monthly project was in, in January we would have uh, a Martin Luther King uh, project where students, uh, we called it the I Dream Project, where students would um, talk about a dream that they have for their local community or uh, their uh, their neighborhood or the country. Uh, and they would um, submit these projects in the form of, you know, poems, pictures, videos. And, and so we saw that you know, students and teachers were super excited about our content, and so we started shifting uh, toward a model where we uh, we offered uh, content on our site, and um, and that became a focal point of uh, teachers and and students uh, engaging in on our on new class. And so that eventually led to us, um, you know, coming out with a brand new iteration of our site, uh, which was essentially a marketplace for teachers. And school districts to purchase uh, what we call assignments, and those and these would be bundled 
pieces of, of curriculum and instruction for teachers to administer to their students. Uh, and every uh, assignment consisted of a, a summative assessment, a formative assessment, and, um, and a lesson plan. And so uh, the big dream was to, um, you know, give teachers an opportunity to share their, their curriculum with other teachers around the states and around the world and for them to make money uh, for sharing their curriculum. And, uh, and we ultimately, ultimately wanted to make money from school districts who were interested in buying packages of curriculum for their teachers. And so, you know, we knew that, you know, in this model, we weren't going to make a ton of money from, from teachers, primarily because teachers don't have, you know, they're underpaid and uh, they don't have uh, that much money. Uh, and, and we knew that we needed to go after the district's pockets. And so uh, that, was, that was a big challenge that we faced. Um, Vern, do you want to touch on any of that? No, I think you hit the nail on the head over there. So that was at that point our biggest our biggest uh, problem was, I mean, how do you how do you make money from teachers? First of all, that we, we've all kind of weird doing that. I mean, charging teachers a dollar per lesson when we know that they're operating on these like thirty k forty k salaries that that was kind of weird. So then we started approaching districts at that point and saying, all right, hey, I mean, districts, you guys are really the people who have the pockets. Right, you you get a budget for curriculum. So, how about you put some of this budget towards uh, the lessons that we're creating? And it was actually a good thing that we started talking to districts because that's when we started opening the conversation as to like, how do we do this on a macro scale? What what about what about this like this um what 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 can you do with this marketplace to make it one step bigger? And it was through those conversations that we really started hearing the pain points that districts had with curriculum and and lesson sharing and ex lesson exchanges for for Common Core and for their district. And uh, you know we we did so I I had the privilege of interviewing you guys um, uh, a, a few months ago at a, a Columbia uh, a physical in person event. Uh, and it sounded when you talked then you guys mentioned uh, that sort of along the way you guys were pretty broke and had a really hard time fundraising and there was some it, this wasn't the the easiest of, of, of journeys for you guys you you want to talk about that a little bit yeah sure I mean uh you know, anytime you're starting a company, you take you make a lot of sacrifices early on. You don't, you know, you don't get paid the the typical salary you would. So, you know, we were living off of uh, small stipends uh, uh, until we uh, were able to fundraise our seed round. And even when we fundraised our seed round, you know, we didn't have you know exorbitant salaries. But you know, uh, you know, we had to do things like uh, Airbnb our rooms out in our apartment and. You know, and crash uh, in the same bed. As weird as that sounds, uh, just to you know, you know, to pay our rent and and keep uh, and keep this U class dream going. Uh, so, you know, I think you know, as first time entrepreneurs, you know, you just kind of have to get your hands dirty and figure out how you're gonna scrape by and uh, keep on keep the lights on so you can keep on working. At uh, at whatever your project you're doing until until you figure it out and make it. Um, so it's uh, you know I, I don't think our our situation or our story is that atypical. Uh, but you know I think we had a lot of hardships early on uh, in just just in terms of and I think these are just learning experiences that every every uh, um, entrepreneur goes through. But I think that you know when you 
when things aren't working, you have to figure, you have to understand that pretty quickly and you move in another direction. And I think we were fortunate enough to to be able to do that. And we were pretty scrappy. Uh, no free lunches, unfortunately. Uh, we did have potlucks in the office. I mean, we did what we could to make the office a positive culture and, and a team environment. Um, but we did we did also like try and try and save money where possible. Um, we worked in a co-working space for the and we still are working in a co-working space and have been for the past two and a half years. Um, and it's more affordable and it's it's kept us lean. Yeah, I mean, you know. Why having separate beds for each individual founder? I mean, that's obviously a waste. Uh, you know, clearly inefficient. Unnecessary. <laughs> you know, yeah. Unnecessary. I mean, one 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 queen size bed. You could fit, you know, two maybe three people on it. You know, Full so size. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, why not? Um, well, that's awesome. So, you guys, you know, one of the things you mentioned is you guys, you know saw yourself as sort of like a social impact company. Um, talk to me about, Bill, you know, I think there's a lot of people who see this trend toward entrepreneurship. It's exciting, but, you know, and, and they want to be a part of it, but they don't necessarily, they're not in it necessarily just for the big payday at the end. You know, they, they want to change the world in some sort of positive way. It, you know, and, and generally speaking, building a company if you don't do something that someone likes, you won't, you know, if you don't make something people want, you'll never go anywhere. Um, but you guys had a, a very clear sort of a social mission. Can you talk about that, building a social company, you know, a social impact company? What's awesome about that? What's hard? You know, what sort of lessons have you guys learned as a result? And, and would you build another, is your next startup, you know, do you think that would be a, a social impact company? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. So, I think what it boils down to is we're all idealists at heart. When we started, when this company started, when U Class started, UnitedClassrooms.org, uh, it started with the mission in mind uh, and not not anything related. We didn't even focus on the business aspect of it. Uh, and eventually, I mean, we realized that for this to sustain itself, what we needed to do was make it a, a double bottom line company. And that the term is used as one which has a social mission, which has uh, we have impact metrics which we're hoping to to maintain and deliver and goals which we meet over there. And then we have of course our, our business value and we have the metrics that we're hoping to meet and deliver over there as well. Um, and it comes with its with its chal with its challenges. I mean one is that like you, you face a certain amount of skepticism from people who from, from a variety of people. You have on one end of the other spectrum uh, those who are also working in social impact and nonprofits who don't believe that you can that that uh, a double bottom line company is the way to go, and there may be some validity to that. But from our standpoint, we thought the best way to scale was if we uh, focused on 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 growing in the way a business would, because the truth of the matter is that businesses do grow more, grow grow faster than nonprofits. We don't have to worry about fundraising as much as nonprofits do. We, we're we're less tied to to certain certain measures and, and regulations. Um, and the other as the other portion of it where we, where we face skepticism is is from certain investors. Are in 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 a couple of ways actually. We are focused a little more in our seed round on getting investors who are specifically targeting impact companies. And that's because traditional investors, when they looked at a company, they would think, hmm, okay, this is interesting. But you guys are in education, and education there's not a lot of money there. Uh, are you guys really going to make money? And us for for us, what we needed, what we told them was. Yeah, we are, but we're also focusing on this other mission. We're really providing value in two different ways. Yes, we'll give your money back. You got your return. 
but also on top of that, we're focusing on from doing some good in the world, like impacting the education industry. Chris, you want to add on to that? Yeah, I think um, you know. I know during my time at Columbia, I um, I spent my extracurricular curricular time um, volunteering and being a part of uh, after school programs. Um, and I decided to pursue uh, those kinds of opportunities rather than being a part of, I don't know, like the finance club or um, even like you know an entrepreneur group, entrepreneurship group. And uh, that's probably because I didn't know that I wanted to be an entrepreneur at the time. But I think that you know, as I um, you know graduated into the workforce, uh, I knew like in my heart of hearts that I wanted to do something that would. Um, you know, uh, affect social cause and and uh, or affect social change and and be a part of um, you know making the classroom better. Or uh, I had I had volunteered in a number of after school programs, so you know, um, being doing work that would um, eventually serve the kids that I used to work with at some point. And so I think that we had the unique opportunity to start a company that uh, could impact. Uh, the way students learned and uh, and changed their the outcomes that they, they would achieve, and so I think that for us being able to start this company uh, was sort of a dream come true. Uh, I think that you know if we wanted to make a ton of money, you know maybe we would have started out in finance or or consulting or pursued some sort of other um, endeavor out, out after school. But you know uh, we knew that um, we wanted to do something more with our lives. Uh, and and making money along the way that's uh, that's just an added bonus. Um, I think that you know going to school at Columbia there's this, there's also this pressure to to uh, do and work a job that that does well and that that earns money. So um, I don't know. I think that we were able to kind of take out two birds with one stone and and now we're working for Renaissance, which impacts millions of students. So it's a, it's pretty cool to be a part of a, a company that. Uh, just has the type of skill that uh, Renaissance has, and, uh, and and we're we're continuing to enjoy it. Uh, Varun, uh, you, you're making faces over there. It looks like you might have to be get, get going. Uh, I do have to leave the precinct. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no worries. Um, Can I just quickly point out um, behind Varun, you'll see a picture of his uh, grandmother and grandfather, who I believe were big uh, influences on his life, uh, and who have been a big source of inspiration for him. So uh, let's give props to them. <laughs> yeah, I was noticing that, along with the, all the other stacks of paper. Vroom, what's the story with, with Grandma and Grandpa? Well, before that, I do want to point out that right behind Chris, you see the American flag. Uh, his, his Virginia background has played a huge, huge role in his life. Uh, I'm, actually, I'm actually in my folks' place today, and uh, this is, this is uh, my dad's office. Oh, Awesome. Um, so uh, w one last thing, Varun, if if, sure. if you have time to, yeah, to take this. Um, so you guys ended up selling to school districts. Mm -hmm. Now, as an entrepreneur, that sounds terrible. Um, just mm -hmm. because I know that they're slow to decide, and fundamentally, the users of your product are the teachers, but the people who decide whether to buy your product are some sort of administrative bureaucrat type. Talk to us about how that, you know, I, and I've heard other ed tech entrepreneurs sort of grumble and complain 
some more loudly than others about that. You know, and, and it seems to me that in any industry where you have the user being separate, or as you know, where the user is a different person than the purchaser, there there's danger there um, around you know what kind of products win. How do you how do you see that? How do you how do you think of that in in respect to your experience? Yeah, that's a very good question, Matt. Um, and you, and you're absolutely right. In these industries, like healthcare, for example, your your users are more than more often than not they're the patients, but the payers are the insurance companies and the folks who who hold the pockets. Um, education is is a, it's different too because uh, you're you are um, bound to a, a a market of of uh, which has like RFPs and a bidding process and. Uh, you have to be on approved vendors list for states and districts, and and sometimes sometimes even on even even smaller level than that. Um, and it, it becomes it becomes a process which which is which is uh, slow to to move through. The average sales cycle in education is over a year long. Um, and Chris can speak a little more to like what that process is like, but. I will say that like it, it did cause a lot, a lot of headache for us because from the outside you hear a lot of a lot of people saying like oh education is ripe for disruption and that sounds fantastic but how can a market be ripe for disruption when the disruption takes at least at least a year to adopt in just one district and I try and scale that out where every district operates in their own independent fashion making their own decisions and you have thousands of those across the U.S. you need a sales force at that point and a startup cannot afford a sales force. So we ended up doing was we started we, we started going for ways where we could in essence buck the system, right? We wanted to um, take some shortcuts. We went to uh, first for the low hanging fruit, which was the charter schools, people who did not have to abide by these big budgets. Organizations which, which had partnerships with with large large uh, regions. Like for example, uh, one 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 Tennessee is divided into these seven seven regions. We partnered with one of them and ended up taking a seventh of Tennessee as 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 one of our as one of our users, um, sorry, as a group of users, um, and then then, we, then then simultaneously we started focusing on some of the bigger districts, the ones which we knew had approval and deadlines uh, to for, for for their budgets. So for example, uh, one 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 of the states that we were talking to, they got a grant and they needed to spend the money of that grant within the school year. Uh, that's good news for us as as an education technology company. Because that means we can focus on on them and and pitching our product as valuable and making an impact to students in their state. Uh, Chris, you want to talk a little more about that? Yeah, I think I uh, just want to echo some of what Vern is has already mentioned. But I think that you know uh, when teachers they're thinking about how to improve instruction in their classroom, uh, they're willing to take uh, take on risks and uh, and try whatever they can to improve the outcomes of their of their students. Whereas uh, you know the people at the top school district, school and district administrators, uh, who are paying for paying for the software. Uh, they realize that you know, um, um, paying for the software is just uh, just the tip of the iceberg. They have to figure out how to to train their uh, train their teachers, get it in front of everyone, um, and then and then have them have them use it. And so that's where you know it it, it was a, a big part of our responsibility to. To convey this customer success plan, uh, f to uh, communicate to our customers how we what we saw success looking like, uh, and to get their buy-in. Because at the end of the day, if you know if uh, school district 
administrators are putting their neck out on the line to say that uh, this is worth spending tens of thousands of dollars for at the end of the year they need to have uh, they need to have results and I think that you know um, a lot of the times um, they don't want to disrupt the status quo or the solutions that they already have in place even if they're not working um, because they know that they have to jump through a lot of hoops uh, to get teachers on board and so um, you know uh, the people that we approached that we had a lot of success with were uh, like for instance charter schools who you know we would voice uh, or communicate um, this idea of customizing our software for them even though um, it wasn't you know even though often they were we we're just tinkering with little changes um, so that they would feel like um, um, they were molding the software as they were using it. And so uh, we helped these initial early adopters to feel like um, they were big influences in um, the software that we're developing. So you mentioned uh, a phrase, you know, like customer success plan. Right, you know, and, and that sounds—I mean—that sounds like something from like the enterprise sales world, right? And yeah. you, but you guys are, are a bunch of teachers, essentially. You know, uh, I guess Varun, you know, you, you're you're an engineer, you're, you're a software engineer. Do you guys feel like your education prepared you for this experience of building the company? And based on this experience, do you think that do you look back and be like, man, I really wish I think that every you know college student or every Columbia student should you know have X you know do, do you guys feel like you're really prepared by your education for these experiences or um, or is there something that you would change if you could go back in time? Uh, yeah. For me, I, I I would say there's a lot uh, I would change. Um, I wouldn't have uh, hung out on the steps so much my senior year and skipped so many classes. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I think that like when you become an entrepreneur, like there's just so many. Uh, you're you're just thrown so many curveballs uh, that I, it's hard to say whether or not any class could have prepared you adequately for. Uh, what you were going to do as an entrepreneur, but I think that you know developing the analytical, um, you know, data-driven mindset that, um, or the skills that you get uh, from, you know, applying applying science or being an engineer, I think that that's definitely useful um, and uh, really a big asset as you're going out to start a company because you know as as much as you want to be emotional and 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 impulsive and irrational about the decisions, which you often are in in the startup setting. You have to be very, um, you know, you have to look to the data. You have to look at information, and uh, allow that kind of rationale to take over and, and to determine the, the the moves you're going to make. And I think that, um, and you just have to be very realistic. I think that uh, that's something that you gather. But I don't know. I think it's hard. We spent like two hundred thousand dollars on our education, and I'm not sure. And I and I studied psychology in school, but I'm not sure if I can, you know, recall a single, you know, fact about psychology uh, or say that I've used any of that. Um, but do, do the facts really matter versus the way of thinking? I guess that's to me like the facts. You can Google those, right? You know, it's the it's, yeah. the, it's the critical analysis and thinking. Sure. I was just curious if you think that you your education you're well served in that in that regard. 
Yeah, I think my quick tidbit is just uh, I think that if you're smart enough, you're going to develop the critical and analytical thinking wherever you're at, uh, regardless of it, whether it's at like a, a, a small or a big state school or at an Ivy League institution. I think that uh, for me, uh, just like, you know, being able to be challenged and not intimidated by other smart people, I think being around a ton of that and a, and a lot of intellectual forces at Columbia, I think that uh, allowed me just to kind of have the, um, the confidence and the audacity you kind of need to have in Silicon Valley just to step up to the plate and speak out. Uh, even if you, you're, you know, even if everything that's coming out of your mouth is just BS, at least you're doing with uh, a bit of confidence. And I think you, you, you kind of learned that uh, being at Columbia or being in New York. There's a lot of truth in that. <laughs> um, I, I, I'd echo that. I would say that, I mean, yes, Columbia did, did set the foundation for a certain level of critical thinking. Um, and but but I, I think I think Chris is right. It's more about like, it's a, you, if you're a smart enough person, you'll figure that out anyways. Um, I to Columbia's credit though, they are investing more heavily in an entrepreneurship program. Um, and I mean, they this is something that has evolved over time. There've been more and more programs being added. There's a Columbia Startup Lab now, which is very cool. I, I wish that were around uh, when when I was in school. Um, but I think I think uh, Columbia, to its credit, has focused a lot on um, project-based learning, at least, at least in C's. Uh, you have a gateway, for example, is your very first class, and you work on, on a real project as basically a consultant as a freshman in college, and that's pretty cool. Um, and so I, I think the, the the cool part about it is Columbia is really doubling down on this idea that like, hey, we'll have students learning through projects, we'll have students learning through experience. Um, and if they're interested in doing entrepreneurship, we have these other resources on the side. We have a, a, a Columbia venture community. We have a Columbia startup lab. We have a, uh, we have competitions for people who want to try try out their own business plans, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I think one thing that both Vern and I are good at are just seeking out people uh, for their advice and for their help. And you know, when you're starting a company, uh, you need good mentorship. Uh, you need to learn off of the experience of other people. Um, and so I think you know one thing. You know, as just being a part of this, uh, I know that I like to offer on my behalf, and I'm sure Varun will as well. But just you know, if anyone wants to reach out to us uh, as they're starting a business or seeking advice, we're also happy to uh, to help people along the way and pay it forward. We've also gotten really good at optimizing Airbnb listings, so if anyone <laughs> needs help with that, let us know too. Um, well, so one of the I would point out because I think. I don't, I'd love to stick on this topic of education, the educational system, Columbia and otherwise. I think that a lot of times people look at education and they just think about what happens in the classroom, you know, and they say, oh, well, you could get this, you could get these learnings through um, Coursera or, you know, you could self-study this stuff. But if I hear you guys correctly, Columbia... It seems like the biggest thing that Columbia did for you guys to build this company and sell it successfully, um, and you know, for um, I, I, it's not public, but I'm gonna guess you guys made you know a cool few million each, is put <laughs> you guys together, right? I mean, Colum this company is a product of the Columbia network. It you know not not anything you learned in class per se, but literally, you know, people that you knew, you know, so. And that's a big deal. I mean, most people don't have friends, you know, aren't working. I think, Chris, previously you told me you're working at Trader Joe's, you know, mm -hmm. when this when the company started. You know, most Trader Joe's employees don't have friends who are going to go start companies, move to Silicon Valley, you know, 
one guy, you know, recruit somebody from Google to be the lead engineer, and then you know, raise venture capital and and, and sell for millions of dollars. Talk about that, if you will. I don't know if you get something you guys have thought about, but I, I just I'd love to hear your you know reflections on on that and and how that plays in this kind of education discussion. Uh, I think first off, Vern and I are both laughing because uh, we we didn't make millions of dollars each. Uh, we wish that had been the case. Uh, this is an education company, Matt. <laughs> Remind you of that. <laughs> uh, and just to you know, just give you a sense, you know, we were we were nine or nine or ten employees when we sold our company, and uh, we'd been doing it. And our story is unusual. We'd been doing it for uh, like two and a half, three years uh, before we sold it. And um, but I think that um, to I guess answer your question. I mean, a lot of it. A lot of it's luck. Uh, I think that you know you have different types of entrepreneurs out there, entrepreneurs who are cold-hearted and you know arrogant and uh, but extremely brilliant and smart, and they're able to make their uh, company succeed and uh, and also achieve success. Uh, I I would like to think Varun and I are, are more warm warm individuals, and I think that you know we are fortunate enough to have. Uh, I think first off, a great friendship. Uh, where uh, we were, we just a, we're just able to trust one another, uh, and I think that when you go into business, you have to go into business with people that you trust. Uh, the last thing you want is to be grappling about about small drama or you know what he or she didn't get versus what they're owed. Um, and what you should when you what you should be focusing on is the company you're building, the problems at hand, the 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 team members you're trying to recruit, and and, and building the business. So um, you know, I mean, it's not uh, people that people that you can count on that are smart enough, driven enough, determined, and that want to take the plunge in to start a company with. They're they're definitely not a dime a dozen. Um, they're unicorns, and so uh, and you have to be lucky. And I think. You know, uh, depending on the type of personality of some people, attract those types of people uh, more easily than others. And that's the biggest thing I think Columbia gave us. It was, I mean, it was each other. It was, it was uh, the people who founded the company. Um, and without that, I, I, I mean, you class wouldn't exist. Yeah, I think that's that's really powerful. You know, that I think in this discussion about education and the changes in education and what the future of the university is going to be. I think the social network that is a place like Columbia or any university, you know, I mean, there's not, there's few times in our lives where we are removed from our families and forced to live in, you know, like shared living situations with strangers, you know, for, for fixed periods of times, uh, you know, like in a dorm, a dorm setting, you know, so, and I think that's valuable. And if you if you take the class, you know, if you just have the classroom experience without the social experience, it, it sounds like this company, you know, wouldn't wouldn't have existed. And I, I just I think that that's something that a lot of the the policy discussion misses um, when people talk about you know sort of disrupting higher education and these like MOOCs and online class you know classrooms. And since you guys are all, you know, ha you know, have been educators and worked in this space, you know, I, I know your your primary focus has been sort of like primary and high school education or K through twelve, but can you talk about, you know, what you guys see, you know, of the think of these various trends around, you know, these online education, is, you know, something like Columbia, you know, like 
a dying breed? Is is what what does the future look like there? Or how do you guys and and how does sort of technology play into that? Sure. Um, higher education is a whole different ball game than we'll, than the game that we played K twelve. Um, but I think fundamentally, I believe that you you cannot replace a teacher. You can augment the capability of a teacher. You can augment the support the student receives, but um, ultimately uh, a, a teacher cannot be replaced. Um, I think what we're seeing is like you have a lot of big institutions that are partnering with organizations like Udemy and Coursera to provide their courses uh, online and for free, which is amazing actually because it's democratizing learning for everyone. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, I, I fundamentally believe that most learning happens through two things. One is like the, the capability of a teacher to uh, impart their knowledge, and two is experiential education. Um, so I think the the, te the courses that will be the most effective are the ones where the teachers are effective in engaging their students, um, whether it be it online or be it in person, and the ones that provide um, real opportunities to practice the skills and the, the tools that you're learning. Um, and I think there does exist a world where online education is more of a bridge for the classroom in person and a user, whether it's behind a computer or in that classroom. Um, but I don't think we're, we're there quite yet. Mm. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, are these MOOCs and and things like you know uh, Coursera? Is this is there a little mini bubble in that? You know, are these going to be are these going to replace universities somehow or? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I want to echo a lot of Vern's sentiments. I think that uh, one of the big hurdles with uh, higher education is just how, how expensive it is. Uh, and, and you have uh, people who are coming from um, uh, lower socioeconomic backgrounds um, uh, who just don't have the kind of opportunity or uh, the kind of opportunity that uh, Vern and I uh, may have had uh, to go to Columbia, so I think that you know because of that, as a result of that, I think there may be more of a push um, uh, and a focus on uh, online education and uh, um, um, access to curriculum and instruction that is that is free and, and open. Uh, but I think that, uh, like Vern said, the teacher is at the focal point of the classroom, and uh, and I'm hoping that you know with technology that is continuing to improve the classroom experience and uh, and there's a bunch of technology that uh, is driven to uh, help develop teachers that uh, I hope that the the bar for uh, instruction and um, and just uh, teacher training is uh, becomes better and better so that uh, regardless of whatever socioeconomic ba background you're a part of uh, you can get access to great uh, instruction delivered to you by uh, by a teacher and someone who's a, a subject matter expert I mean, the my my the one thing I'd I'd say there, you know, or my my one response to that is, you know, I hear you say that, but it, but you said earlier, you know, that the most valuable thing from your education was actually the connections you made. You know, it seems like the knowledge, the instruction is being commoditized and democratized by all these online platforms, but the connections aren't. You know. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, uh, that yeah, seems like I, a really profound I, point to me. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, it's, it's that's that experience and the connection. That's you know, those are very hard to isolate and 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 to bottle up. I think that you know, you ask, you know, twenty other different Columbia students, uh, and 
you know, they, they could have had very different experiences at Columbia. I went, you know, Vern and I went to our five-year reunion recently, and I saw a bunch of faces uh, that I had never seen before. I met a bunch of people I had never met before, you know, and I asked them, like, you know, what kind of friend group were you in in college? And, and I remember one girl saying, like, yeah, uh, I studied a lot. I didn't really get out that much. And uh, maybe she had a great time at Columbia, but, her, you know, the connections that she came out with. Uh, were very different than, and the experience that she had is very different from the uh, the one that I had. Um, so I think I don't know. It, it, it's hard to, um, uh, I guess, prescribe how anyone get the most out of uh, the connections available. And I think it really a lot of it just depends on your personality as well. Yeah. Um, so one one sort of like you know to start wrapping things up here, I, I did want to talk a little bit about. The lessons you guys learned, you know, around sort of building an education technology company as idealists, right? You guys are self-described idealists. You're not just in this to make a quick buck. And I know a lot, you know, I, I think one of the you know, I graduated in two, from Columbia in 2008, and I think one of the defining sort of trends of the kind of millennial generation is this like this idealism, but also combined with you know, once you get out of the structured environment of a of a Teach for America, how, what to, where to where to put this? You know, how how to turn this idealism into action? And you know, you guys did it building a technology company for for education. Now that you know you've been through a cycle, you've had this this adventure. Would you do it again? And what advice would you have for? the next generation of idealists or other idealists who are out there who who want to have some positive impact in the world um, you know what 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 wisdom do you would you have to to pass down sure that's a good question um, and Matt I'm gonna have to leave after this um, but uh, yeah to answer your question uh, I think I think uh, idealism is is uh, something that you really need to hold on to because the, the scary part of it is like Throughout the course of our company, we definitely had moments where we had our idealism challenge. We we on um, the first one one of the first uh, weeks of our company, the, the the founders sat down and we came up with a list of uh, values that we wanted to hold ourselves to. And Chris and I actually dug up that list recently and we went through it. And um, it's scary to think that like at times, like if I were to be completely honest, we we wavered on on those on those uh, values. Um, and that's. That those are our our ideals, right? So if you don't have those values ticking by ticking through your ideals, like what do you have? Um, but on the flip side of that, like we tried our best and we stuck to we, at least we had that. And I, I wonder, like, what if we didn't have that, right? Um, so I, I in terms of advice I'd give to other entrepreneurs, um, I think I think idealism is is honestly like the best way to go. Um, it's you're you're only you're only on this earth for a short amount of time, and if you're gonna do it. You're gonna and you want to make an impact. You might as well do it in, in an idealistic manner. You might as well do it for a mission. Um, and I've seen a lot of companies succeed in, in Silicon Valley that that do have that idealism. You don't have to build the next Uber for Blink in order to have a tech company. You could have a tech company that 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 does that does uh, meet your idealism as well as as well as like satisfies your need for for tech. Uh, I would absolutely do that again, and I think I would I would definitely build another social impact company again. Um, and I hope to do it again with friends. Yeah, I think uh, m much uh, of the same for me. 
Uh, I think that would you would you guys build another education technology company where you're selling to school districts? So I think I remember you asking this question at the panel that we're a part of, and I initially said no. Uh, I'm not 100% certain whether or not that that'll be our our, our next venture, um, but I think that you know we had a very unique and uh, telling experience, and I think that. You know, uh, it. I think that there is a just uh, we just have a lot of experience in this space, and I think that you know, with that, uh, and with that, um, you know, it may make sense to start another uh, startup in the education space again. Uh, I think that the things that scare us away are just how hard and how bureaucratic the system it is. It it is, and um, not knowing whether or not we want to go through trying to figure out how to how to sell an education again. Well, uh, you know, uh, let's just wrap this thing up. So, uh, you know, thank you guys so much. You know, we've been here talking with Chris Yin and Varun Gulati, the co-founders of U-Class, which was acquired by Renaissance Learning uh, earlier this year. Thank you guys so much for talking with us and sharing your story. It's It's been fantastic. Yeah, thanks for having us, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate it. All right, and thank you, everybody. Uh, this has been Matt Morales. This is episode two of Columbia Alumni Radio, columbiaradio.org. Uh, thank you so much. If you uh, if if you're you're new to the show, most likely, um, you know, we'd love to have you. You know, tell a friend, uh, share. You know, sh share the show with with anybody you know, and, and think it's it's interested. Also, if you are interested. In, uh, in telling us about people you think we should interview, you know, I'm going to frankly through my personal network here, um, which will, will run out at some point. So, yeah, I, I look forward to, to recommendations from from subscribers and listeners of uh, interesting people. You know, uh, not just in technology, not just in startups. You know, that that's my background. I've I've been an entrepreneur, but uh, interesting people in in any field. So, uh, if that's you, send me an email, Matt at ColumbiaRadio.org. Thank you so much.